Um, the reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 20, and it's on page 485 in the Bible, in the, in the seats. Nehemiah inspects Jerusalem's walls. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was reading on. By night I went out to the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for Ursula as she comes to preach, for us, preach to us. Lord, we thank you for Ursula. Again, we thank you for her ministry here. Uh, the, uh, how she balances her, her ministry here with her other um, professional commitments. Thank you, Lord, for the, all that she gives to us. Will you please anoint her now, Lord? May her words be your words. And may you give to her the mind of Christ, which is your promise to each one of us. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you all and to um, know that you didn't give in to the temptation to stay under the duvet this morning, like I did, almost. So this morning we're carrying on looking at the story of Nehemiah, which we started a couple of weeks ago. And in today's passage, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and the work of rebuilding the city walls begin. Um, David started his sermon last week with the obvious joke about height, so I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> Let's start by setting this passage in context. The temple in Jerusalem had been re rebuilt under Zerubbabel and Ezra, 
and Ezra also oversaw the return of some 50,000 of the exiles into Jerusalem and restored temple worship. And Esther had already saved her people from destruction. And all this was set in the time period between about 536 to 425 BC. So we're looking at about 100 years. And here in Nehemiah, we're looking at the conclusion of this particular aspect of the Jewish return from exile. And this is set about 444 to 425 BC when we were in the Iron Age. So what do we learn from Nehemiah and its accompanying text from Ezra and Esther about how to face the challenges that we have in our lives? We've already heard from Peter and David in the previous two Sundays that Nehemiah believed in the power of prayer and of perseverance. And as a godly leader, we'll see as we work our way through the book of Nehemiah that he motivated the Israelites to complete the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem despite severe opposition. He was a man with a servant heart. As cupbearer to the king, he literally took his life in his hands as he tasted the food to check that it wasn't poisoned. And when God called him to be part of his plan to restore his nation to their homeland, he showed himself both to be a servant of God and a servant of God's people. In times of crisis, God chose and called Nehemiah. Nehemiah was his man for the job, one who would stay faithful to both God and his calling. And we remember, don't we, that God had already intervened in the history of his people during this period and averted their destruction by Haman. The words of Mordecai to Esther ring down to us through the centuries when he said to her, how do you know you weren't sent for such a time as this? And it's sometimes encouraging for us to remember when we face situations that seem overwhelming or destructive or harmful, that God does and will raise up and equip us as people who can stand in the gap like Esther did. So following Esther's intervention on behalf of her people, Zerubbabel and Ezra begin the building of the temple and the return of worship to the temple and then the return of the exiled nation to Jerusalem. The people again had a place where they could come together and worship and a focus for their religious life. The calamity of genocide had been averted and so the story moves on, this time to restoring the city walls. This story is set in a time of conflict. It seems to be an ongoing problem in the Middle East, doesn't it? And city walls not only defined the footprint of the city, but gave strength and security to its residents. It's only in modern history that we've seen cities grow and spread without walls. Instead, they're contained by ring roads on the M25. <laughs> I thought as I drove on the M25 yesterday. <laughs> in ancient cities, city walls were the only means of defence. 
They were thick and they were high. Babylon, who at that period was the largest city in the world, had walls 380 feet thick and 100 feet high. It must have looked amazing. But this story tells us that as we face difficulties, when life's turns seem to be darker, we can trust that God is at work, not only to save us, but to restore us. He will redeem the years that may look to have been unfruitful and that we remember as times of pain and loss. He will restore and redeem them. We can have confidence that he says the same thing to us as he did to the people of Israel in Isaiah 41. I have chosen you and have not rejected you, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we can have confidence as we pray. As Romans 8:28 tells us, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Verse 11 of Nehemiah tells us that he went to Jerusalem and after staying for three days, he set out in the night with a few others, but that he hadn't yet told anyone what God had put on his heart. He went out to assess the situation. And although our passage today is set in Jerusalem, we've already heard that God had set the train of events off years earlier which culminated after prayer and after a prompt from God to speak up for his people in the courts of a pagan king, with Nehemiah not only being released to travel to Jerusalem, which was about 800 miles away, but provided with all he needed. So he arrived, and then he waited. And although we're told his arrival happened three days before his survey, and we don't know what he did in those three days, the population surely would have known that he'd arrived. You can't arrive with an army, can you, and letters from the king without people speculating. I was thinking as I read this story of the difference between Nehemiah's handling of his calling from God to the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph told his brothers of his dream and of his vision And his brother's reactions was to try to firstly kill him and then sold him into slavery. Nehemiah chose a different path. He didn't reveal God's vision too soon. He waited for God's timing. And I wondered if Nehemiah knew there would be opposition. And that was maybe one of the reasons why he waited. Because when the work starts, we're told that the opposition began immediately. Nehemiah began with a moonlit tour of the walls to assess the damage and to see the extent of the work needed. I wonder, was the job bigger than he first suspected? Sometimes we only see a fuller picture of the work that God has called us to once we've committed ourselves to it.
and oftentimes our need for faith will increase only when we're truly aware of the facts of the situation or the crisis we face. Having faith doesn't mean we ignore problems or that we're blind to the facts or that we're ignorant of what has taken place over time. And this is true in our lives as well as that of Nehemiah. Stepping out in faith means looking squarely at the problems, knowing the facts, understanding what has happened, what the story is, and then looking to God and walking with him in trust and faith that he holds the bigger picture and his plans are for good. A vision may come to us supernaturally, but then God calls us to use all of our gifts and resources to carry out this vision. And there's no conflict, is there, between a God-given vision and the hard and sometimes boring work of study and investigation. Nehemiah takes time to acquaint himself firsthand with the problem before he speaks publicly about the vision God has given him. And then he speaks to the citizens of Jerusalem. And his speech is straightforward and to the point. And he identifies with them and with the situation. It's the language of we together and not the language of you must. He's given up home, position, power to become a citizen of Jerusalem, to identify himself as a returning exile. He's moved from the comfort of a royal palace to a city that's only partially rebuilt with no defensive walls to share the dangers and hardships with them. And he doesn't mince his words. He speaks as he sees it. Words like trouble, ruin and disgrace pepper his speech. He's not a man who's afraid to face the truth, to see the difficulties. But he's also a man of faith who's seen the potential, who sees the way forward, sees the way to remedy the problems. But once he's spoken, the opposition starts. When things are going well, as they had been so far for Nehemiah, it can sometimes come as a bit of a shock when criticism and opposition starts. But Nehemiah's response is simple. This is God's work we're doing. God's in charge. He doesn't get disheartened, but responds to the challenge. And the charge that Sambalat and Tobias and Geshem make could hardly be more serious. Ezra 4 tells us that King Artaxerxes had ordered work in the temple to stop because he realized the Israelites had a long history of revolt and rebellion. If this new accusation that they were making had been believed, the king could have ordered Nehemiah to stop the rebuild, and he would have stopped it by force if necessary. Nehemiah's three accusers were angry that someone had come to displace the status quo, to rock the boat. He had a concern for the people of Israel, and they didn't like that. And Sambalat and Tobiah had an arrangement with one of the priests at the temple, 
which had left temple officials deprived and shortchanged whilst they lined their own pockets. Sometimes opposition comes from human traits such as self-interest and ambition rather than as a direct onslaught from demonic forces. Either way, we'll see in a couple of chapters' time that Nehemiah sets watchmen to keep guard over the community as they built. So what can the story of Nehemiah say to us? As we go through this series of sermons, I'm sure we'll see many parallels to our individual and corporate experiences. But this morning, I would like to draw out just three themes. The first is foundations. As I read through the story of Nehemiah, it struck me that there's not a particular mention of foundations. The text tells us that the gates have been burned and that the walls are reduced to rubble in places. But the footprint of the walls was still there. Sometimes during the storms of life or when we feel oppressed, it can seem as if we're being rocked to our very foundations. And I guess we've, or many of us will have seen the footprints poster, which shows um, Jesus carrying us during hard times. And we can probably relate to the sentiments that it has. But the picture presented for us here in Nehemiah is that no matter how destructive or challenging life has been or is being, our foundations are in Christ. Our foundations are secure. The footprint of God's work in our lives is not shaken. And as I thought about this, I was reminded of the picture we were given as a fellowship of a galleon that needed repair and restoration. But its foundation as a ship was still sound. It hadn't sunk. It was the superstructure that needed repair. We go through cycles in life, don't we? We go through times of growth, times of feeling we've been knocked back, times of quiet, times of restoration, times when we need healing. And if you're anything like me, sometimes, particularly the dark times, can feel as if they go on forever. But history tells us that they come to an end, that God will always lead his people onward. And it's his nature to restore the years the locust has eaten. Sometimes it's only through times of difficulty and challenge we realize just how secure our foundations are. And even though we might wobble, the underpinning hand of God will hold us firm. Secondly, I'd like to just look briefly at what are our building blocks We've already started to explore a call to prayer, both corporately and as individuals. But what else do we build with? We're told Nehemiah took time before he shared his vision of rebuild, and then with just a few companions, he surveyed the scene. Corporate worship had already been restored. And Hebrews 10 tells us, And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do not neglect meeting together. There's a strength and encouragement, isn't there, that comes from being part of a Christian community. And here I suggest we can draw from the pattern of Nehemiah, of taking time prayerfully to survey the ground of our lives, and then in the company of a few trusted friends take stock and commit ourselves to whatever aspect of change and growth the Holy Spirit reveals. And for each of us, there will probably be different priorities, different areas where we sense that we need healing and restoration. Or maybe we'll be prompted by the Holy Spirit into fresh growth or into a deepening of our relationship with God through our saving knowledge of Jesus. And corporately, as we consider the way forward as a community of believers, here's the opportunity for us to take stock, to use the building blocks of prayer, to immerse ourselves in the scriptures, and of koinonia, which is fellowship, which is pursuing common good, which is communion. Jesus tells us in Mark 12, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second commandment is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. To love God with all our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. These commandments would seem to be a good place to start as we prayerfully consider the road ahead. Let's not hide our eyes from the broken down places, from those places where we feel far from adequate. But remember, God is in the business of healing and redeeming. He wants to mend the broken places and make them whole. And if we focus on Jesus and not on the world, we are changed, we are transformed. We become more like the people he created us to be. And let's rejoice in the good there is, both corporately and individually, in this place, in Christchurch, in Baston Hill. A few years ago, a thought struck me as I read through Nehemiah. Why bother? Why did God put everything in place, bring the right people at the right time together in history to rebuild Jerusalem? And one of the reasons I came up with a few years ago still applies to us today. There were prophecies and visions for Jerusalem that hadn't yet been fulfilled. And the same, as I've said, applies to us now as it did a few years ago. God has spoken prophetic words and given visions for this church, for this community of believers, for our lives that are still unfulfilled. God still has plans for us in his kingdom. But he warns us to build on good foundations, on the rocks of hearing and doing his word. And as Matthew 7 says, not to be foolish and build on sand. With its walls rebuilt, Jerusalem will once more become a place of security, a place where the people of God can gather in safety to worship, 
with rebuilt gates through which others are welcomed in, a place where the promises and prophetic word of God to his people will come to pass. And it's the same word to us today, I believe. And finally, I'd like to just mention calling. Different sections of the wall will need different skills. Carpenters, stonemasons, people to serve food, people to collect supplies. The list would be enormous and would include everyone. But although there were different skills, there was an interdependence. There was a common vision. Each person would know that they were using their unique skills in the rebuild. And so for us too. Each of us has a calling on our lives, just like Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. As we assess the present and look to the future, we might not know exactly what part God is calling us for, what part he has for us, or where he is calling us to stand up and be counted to say, yes, Lord, I recognize the work you've been doing in my life, the calling you have placed upon me, the skills which I have, which I will use for the building of your kingdom. But as we think about Nehemiah, maybe we can say before our Lord in prayer, Lord, I might not see the whole picture, but I'm willing to trust you to lead me and to lead us as a fellowship onward. Amen.